The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Charlotte and Brent Springford were well-respected, successful, progressive-minded pillars of their community in Montgomery, Alabama. Everything in their lives seemed perfect, but that was about to change on November 25th, 2004. Join me now as we take a look at the case of Brent Springford Jr., a man whose desperate search for spiritual enlightenment crossed paths with a predator and con woman. You'll also hear from author Mark Pinsky who not only wrote the book on the case, but also became personally affected by it, even becoming involved with law enforcement. On June 24, 2015, the Weston County Sheriff's Department received a call from a ranch just outside of Newcastle, Wyoming, a small town in the northeast corner along the South Dakota border. 63-year-old Caroline Scout was calling to report a death. 60-year-old caretaker Richard Campbell Jr., or Sandy as everyone called him, was found dead in one of the trailers on her property. He'd apparently committed suicide. When police arrived on the scene, they found Sandy deceased with a gunshot wound to his head, lying face up on the floor. A rifle sat resting across his chest. Although there seemed to be a few minor inconsistencies, Foul play wasn't suspected, and the gunshot wound was assumed to have been self-inflicted. However, a few days later, Deputy Sheriff Patrick Wasaba received another phone call. This one came from 2,000 miles away. I called, and I said, I'm looking for someone who's involved in the death on Caroline Scout's property. And the woman said, I'll connect you. That's Mark Pinsky, an author and investigative journalist who at the time of Sandy's death was writing his second true crime book, Drifting Into Darkness. As it turned out, Caroline Scout, the woman who discovered Sandy's body, was a central figure in the book he was working on. And so she connected me and I said, um, I understand you found a body on Caroline's property. She said, yeah, and it looks like suicide. I said, well, how much do you know about Caroline? Although it's not uncommon for police to brush off journalists, surprisingly, the deputy seemed interested in what Mark had to say. Yeah, you know, she's been on me to sign a death certificate because there's an insurance policy that she's the beneficiary of. Ding, 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 ding. I said, there's some more things you ought to consider before you sign the death certificate. The story Mark Pinsky told Wasaba was a whirlwind tale that went deeper than he could have ever imagined. One of the cardinal rules of journalism for a reporter is don't become part of your story. For 40 years working for newspapers and magazines, I observed that. Later when I taught, I taught my students that. But every so often you encounter a story that just begs for your personal involvement, and this is one of those stories. 
So what exactly did Mark tell Deputy Sheriff Watsaba? Well, to answer that question, we have to take you far away from the windswept prairies of Wyoming into the heart of the Deep South. Just south of modern downtown Montgomery, Alabama, a neighborhood known as the Garden District serves as a monument to the city's rich and, at times, tumultuous history. Mark Pinsky takes us there. The Garden District is mostly stately old homes, high officials, wealthy business people, but it's, there's enough of a mix that it's a kind of, it's a seasoning of it. But when you walk through the Garden District or drive through it, you do feel like you are in the Old South. I mean, they're not too many pillars and not a lot of Spanish moths and fortunately no more slaves, but that district makes you feel like you are, are in a different place. It was there in the Garden District where Charlotte and her husband Brent Springford Jr. lived in 2004. And much like the city where they lived, the Springfords had quite a history of their own. The Springfords were a family deeply marked by tragedy. When, when Charlotte Springford, who is from Montgomery, married Brent Springford Sr., they first were not sure where they would settle. They were both educated. They both had their whole futures in, in front of them. But slowly, problems arose. Charlotte had met Brent Sr. in Panama City, Florida in 1963. At the time, she was a school teacher, while Brent trained to be an Air Force pilot. Eventually, the couple married in 1969 and moved to Corning, New York, just south of the Finger Lakes. Charlotte had, had several miscarriages, and then she had a child, a daughter. And when the daughter was just two years old, Brent and Charlotte took their first vacation. And they left their two-year-old daughter with her father and stepmother and her half-sister. And while they were away, there was a fire at the house. And in the fire, the two-year-old child died. Her father died. Her stepmother died. Her stepsister barely escaped. And from what I've read of their personal papers, Brent Sr. had this idea that he was going to go into military intelligence and he was going to live this exciting life. And all of a sudden, tragedy struck him and the business needed someone to lead it. So even in tragedy, they had to change their course of their life and come back to Montgomery, which can be provincial, and run the family business, which was a, a Pepsi bottling company. After Charlotte's father's death, the profitable Pepsi bottling factory he'd run in Laverne, Alabama, was passed on to Brent Sr. to operate. Located just about an hour outside of Montgomery, in the post-civil rights era, it wasn't the easiest place to live when it came to a progressive-minded couple like the Springfords. When she came back with her husband and started her family in Montgomery, people thought, well, there's always been a tradition in the South of the sort of people who are ahead of their times. And I think she was in that group. Most people in Montgomery, white people in Montgomery, I should say, were very conservative, very anti-civil rights, or in fact, racist, and not very widely traveled. Charlotte's southern roots, combined with Brent's business acumen, allowed them to be integrated into Montgomery's high society. She could never be dismissed as an outside agitator. She was an Alabamian. Yes, she married somebody from the West who was different in many ways, but he was a military veteran. So in the South, if you're from here, or if you're a military veteran, that gives you a kind of protective coding for views that may be more advanced than 
what your friends and neighbors held at the time. And because they also combined that with business, he was a successful businessman, he grew the business. And because they shared the money by donating to good causes, they were protected from their views of being ostracized. Their social set was not confined to liberals and oddballs. It was at the top of the social structure in Montgomery because they were rich, they were educated, they were civic-minded. So, well, if they're a little bit ahead of us on race, that's okay. By 1976, Brent and Charlotte had decided it was time to try and start a family again. Business was booming, and the children they hoped for soon arrived. Brent Jr. was born, Sister Robin was born. They seemed to be happy kids. They were at this private school, the best private school in Montgomery, called the Montgomery Academy. In many ways, Brent Jr. was a golden boy. He was handsome, he was athletic, he was smart, people liked him, and he was also rich. And the parents really devoted their lives to their children. They, they took them on field trips or outside of school. They did all these enrichment things, all the things that caring parents would do. And both parents were, for Alabama, very liberal on the, on the issues of race. So these were good people. These were philanthropic people. These were liberal people in, on all the social issues that they should be. So these were not neglectful, rich parents. These were caring parents. They taught them that they had an obligation, an altruistic obligation as people of privilege, to share that privilege and to put that privilege to good use for the greater world. And things seemed to be going great. Brent Jr. graduated in 1994 at the height of the grunge era, when many Gen Xers decided to embrace the apathetic slacker motif. But not Brent Jr. Instead, he became fascinated with discovering life's meaning, purpose, and maybe even enlightenment. In the fall of 1994, Brent enrolled at Vanderbilt University, and although neither he nor his parents were religious, he chose religion as his major. When he went to Vanderbilt, he approached it in a very systematic and serious way. He took various courses about Eastern religions and still read New Age stuff, but he read the formal stuff. He read the good stuff, and it, it impacted him. At first, Brent Jr.'s spiritual reading seemed to be having a positive effect, encouraging him to give back and make the world a better place. When they have these breaks, he would go on these trips to South America, Central America, and build roads, help to build bridges. But at some point, after he had done all this serious book learning, as they say, he became, I won't say obsessed, not quite obsessed, but deeply interested in it. So interested in it that he wanted to pursue it in a more direct way, which is when he began attending Hindu and Buddhist retreats around the U.S. and Mexico. He wanted to get closer to the source. But he had this drive to become enlightened. He wanted to become an enlightened person. And he read all these books about different people who had, had these striking spiritual experiences. And it wasn't happening to him. And he kept wondering, why isn't this? I'm open to it. Why isn't it happening to me? And he kept putting himself in places, physical places, um, and intellectual places where he thought that would be, would be likely to happen. Brent's fascination with religion and philosophy soon turned into a spiritual pursuit, and after two years of college, he decided to make traveling, reading, and the path to enlightenment his focus. In 1996, 
he decided to take some time away from school and continue traveling to attend Buddhist retreats. Most of all, he read. At one point, Brent even decided to live like a hermit monk at his family's lake house, where he spent months on end doing little else besides reading books on philosophy and religion. Although the family was increasingly baffled by Brent Jr.'s spiritual quest and ever-changing personality, his mother made every effort to understand Brent before jumping to conclusions. She did everything she possibly could. When he was reading books about Eastern faiths and traditions and New Age stuff, she would get a list of, of the books that he was reading and she would read them too. When he began his quest from retreat to retreat, he would say, you know, you would really love these people. She'd get on a plane and she'd go to the retreat and spend time at the retreat with him. You know, she tried to parallel him as much as possible until it became no longer possible and it was slipping away from her. As time went on, Brent's parents began to worry their son wouldn't return to college at all. Charlotte also had other concerns. He was becoming increasingly irrational. There was one disastrous trip when he was living on a mountaintop in Mexico, in Chiapas, and his parents came to visit him and he just weirded them out. He was aggressive, self-aggrandizing, uh, he wasn't eating well, and his mother recognized some of those signs of incipient bipolar disorder. Charlotte had a secret she'd never shared with her son, a history of mental illness that ran through her side of the family, including her mother. For generations, her family had been susceptible to bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, alcoholism, and even suicidality. She'd been concerned that if she told Brent about her family history when he was growing up, it might result in some form of self-fulfilling prophecy. Soon Charlotte began contacting psychologists, counselors, and mental health professionals, trying to find an answer as to what might help Brent return to some sense of normalcy. When is the time to stop indulging him or enabling him? When could that have a salutary effect? Or when could it end in disaster? Because this was a high, high wire act. I mean, with a person who become as volatile as he had, anything could happen. In spring of 1999, Brent Jr. decided to re-enroll in college. But instead of heading back to Vanderbilt, he enrolled at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado, a college originally founded as a Buddhist institute where he could continue his religious studies and dive deeper into his search for enlightenment. The choice of university was initially met with skepticism from his parents, who were still paying all of his bills. Ultimately, they decided it was a compromise they could live with. Brent could continue on with his spiritual pursuits, now at least back in a formal university setting. When Brent moved to Boulder to attend Naropa University, he had no roommate. He had no one to live with, and he didn't, I think his parents didn't want him to live alone. So he saw a notice on a bulletin board at the school from a woman who was a graduate student. To maintain her privacy, Mark Pinsky referred to the female graduate student in his book by the pseudonym Anne Flinders. She was a good person. She liked him. She didn't feel like living with a single man was in any way dangerous. She said he was very helpful. He helped around the place and they got to be friends. And she gives us a look into his life because she talked about how typically of Naropa, he was 
so desperately searching for enlightenment, possibly through a guru of some sort. At first, Brent Jr. believed that Anne herself might be the spiritual leader he'd been looking for. But she kind of quickly disabused him of that. But she liked him and she brought him into her family circle. Her parents lived in, in Boulder. They were also wealthy, very gifted people. Her father was very ill and dying. And as, they, as she brought Brent into her home, Brent typically took a shine to the father and volunteered to be a, a respite care person, to sleep on the floor next to his bed. He's not related to that person. It's only the father of a woman he had basically just met. But that was his altruistic impulse was to do that and to help him. And that was Brent. Ann Flinders' mother was a former opera singer named Marie. And like so many of Boulder's residents, she considered herself to be a very spiritual person. She had in her home a kind of informal salon of spiritual and new age people who would come and be in the house. And one of the characters, the cast of characters at her house was this woman who she believed to be a Native American shaman because the woman claimed that. And her mom hired this woman to help her with breathing exercises and counseling and various things. So. The woman was from Wyoming. She had a small ranch up in Wyoming, but once a month she would come down to Boulder and in my view, basically, you know, harvest the rubes and take advantage of people's spirituality. And she claimed to be a counselor. She was not certified in anything. She claimed to be a college graduate. She wasn't a college graduate. As it turned out, she wasn't even registered with any Native American tribe, whether she was in fact even Native American is a matter of some, some dispute. But Marie, would put her up in her home. So not only did she have her for the salon, she stayed with, with Marie. There's no way anyone could have known it at the time, but Brent's search for enlightenment and his recent obsession with finding a spiritual guru were on a direct collision course with a predator as he continued to frequent Marie's home. And as fate would have it, one day, Brent Jr. came to her home and he met this woman and she must have had some sort of an aura as soon as he met her, he dropped to his knees and put his head to the floor and he said, you're my spiritual guide. And when that happened, the die was cast. The mysterious woman claimed to be an American Indian shaman, 48-year-old Caroline Scout. As best we've been able to ascertain, Caroline was born in a suburb of Los Angeles to a single mother, Hispanic. On her birth certificate, it says Caucasian. She went to public school, attended church, and then in her junior year, she became pregnant and dropped out, had a child, married the child's father, and then shortly thereafter, abandoned both the child and the husband. And then the trail goes cold for a little bit. And then at some point, she gravitated to the town of Newcastle, Wyoming. It was in Wyoming where Caroline appropriated her American Indian persona and began reinventing herself. She told people a story at great variance with the facts as we know them. She told people that she was an orphan. She told people that she had learned she was Native American, that she had learned about being a shaman from her grandmother, who was the last of the great Apache shamans, and, um, and basically began hustling people. Caroline used her invented identity as a tool and weapon to wield spiritual influence over the trusting and vulnerable people she came into contact with. If you're shopping for pure evil, 
I think you've come to the right place. Brent Jr. felt otherwise. In fact, he believed he'd finally found the person who could lead him to enlightenment. And so first he signed up for her breathing class. So she's charged $100 an hour to teach people how to breathe in the proper way. He wrote a paper about her for one of his Naropa classes. He began spending more time with her. And increasingly, he fell under her sway. Eventually, Brent Jr. invited his parents out to Boulder to meet Caroline, and they were immediately impressed by her, believing she was a counselor and a teacher who could help their son navigate a difficult period in his life. Beyond continuing to pay Brent Jr.'s bills, which now included $100-an-hour breathing sessions, they also wrote a check for $6,000 to Caroline to help cover expenses in her role as Brent's informal caretaker. For the Springfords, the money was a show of support to their son and the woman he sought counsel from. But for Caroline, it was an indication of their considerable wealth. Perhaps Brent Jr. could be worth a lot more to her than just the expensive breathing sessions she'd been charging him for. The Naropa student year ended. Neither he suggested or she suggested that he spend the summer up on her Wyoming ranch and learn about Native American culture. And he thought that was the greatest idea in the world. The summer in Wyoming was met with enthusiasm from Brent's parents, as they believed their son was improving under Caroline's care. But when they flew to visit him on the ranch, it became clear Brent's mental state was actually getting worse. Caroline, to some degree with Brent Jr., tried to sell his parents on investing in this lodge that she wanted to build as a counseling center up on her property. And um, they went with them to a festival, and Brent Jr., instead of being better, was acting weirder and weirder. Everybody at this Native American festival was embarrassed by his actions, and his parents uh, apologized, and Caroline apologized to the elders, and then he apologized. So on one hand, he seemed to be getting better, and then all of a sudden, it seemed like he really wasn't getting better. And then as the summer ended, Brent's parents thought he was going to go back to Boulder, go back to, to, to Naropa, but that didn't happen. That wasn't happening. He stayed there. And in the beginning, he would travel with her when she would go down to Boulder on a monthly basis. And he'd go with her as kind of a, just accompanying her. And later, when he got weird, weirder, um, she began coming alone and leaving him to take care of the, the ranch. Unbeknownst to Brent's parents and anyone else, in June 2000, Brent and Caroline were married in Deadwood, South Dakota. But the marriage to Caroline, who was literally twice Brent's age, wasn't what you might expect, because there was no romance, physical or sexual contact. Caroline would later say it wasn't that kind of marriage. So what kind of marriage was it? For Caroline, it was a way to legally link herself to Brent Jr., as well as his wealthy, generous, and desperate parents. Although Caroline had been a lifelong scammer and grifter, author Mark Pinsky believes it's just possible her original intentions for Brent Jr. hadn't been entirely crooked. I don't think she saw him as a mark. I think she saw him as someone who needed help that she could provide. And it was only later as a bonus that she realized how wealthy his family was and what a what a meal ticket she had in, in him. I mean, she had you know scammed lots of other people, some for lots of money, but not... Not big, big money. I mean, tens of thousands, and in some cases, hundreds of thousands from people. But it was usually a one-time thing. It was 
please give me money so I can establish a center for abused Native American women and, and children. Okay, where do I write the check? You know, Boulder is a good place for that. I mean, you have socially conscious people, and if they believe what you say and don't feel the need to check up on you and won't run your record, yeah, you, you would write them a check. But this was something of a much greater magnitude. This is like a lifetime meal ticket. She came to discover how dependent he was becoming on her and how wealthy his parents were. Over the course of five years, between 1999 and 2004, it's estimated Caroline received nearly $1 million from the Springfords. If you chart the money flow, it starts little by little. You know, five grand here, 10 grand here, expenses here, gifts for the grown children here. And then you really start to move up. You start to move to a house in Greeley, buying a whole house for half a million dollars. And it's like whatever they asked for, and his increasing demands, which I came to believe were her demands voiced through him, these growing demands for money and stuff. I just think she felt like she had struck gold with him. Caroline was clever. She was never the one directly requesting money from the Springfords. They were always voiced through Brent Jr., through phone calls and letters, which became increasingly petulant. Like many con artists, Caroline soon drove a wedge between Brent Jr. and everyone he loved. And although we'll never really know what she was whispering in his ear, we do know that Brent Jr. eventually cut off every single one of his friends from back home in Montgomery, including his sister Robin. The only people he didn't cut off were, of course, the two people continuing to write checks on his behalf, his parents. At some point, his parents became suspicious, more his father than his mother initially. And as the demands escalated, from time to time, they would resist. And that increasingly would infuriate Brent. He had a very low threshold for frustration, and he took it out on himself. I mean, if things didn't go right, he would bang his head against the ground or gravel or stay up all night digging a hole in the backyard, a hole for no purpose. And I think the seed was planted that his parents hated Caroline and by extension hated him. And you can just see from the tenor of his letters and his faxes to his parents, this growing, growing anger, and to some degree, a real sense of a creepy sense of entitlement. I say in the book that at one point, it seemed like his parents were only good as an ATM for him. All communication between the Springfords and Brent Jr. began being filtered and relayed through Caroline. By isolating Brent and cutting off most direct communications between him and his parents, Caroline was able to make Brent Jr. see his parents in whatever light she chose to paint them. One of those ways was to make Brent believe his parents hated Caroline's children, his stepchildren. The reason she told them was because of their American Indian heritage. And to say that they were slighting Caroline and her family because she was Native American was just, you know, that's tone deaf. That's tone deaf and not believable at all and could only happen if somebody, I think, was whispering in his ear. This is why they won't give me the 50 grand, because I'm a person of color. Transparently bogus, but to a vulnerable person, to a suggestible person, to a gullible person, well, you know, she was with them and they were half a country away. So who are you going to believe? The people you don't see every day or the person who you live with? It was essential to Caroline's scheme for Charlotte to continue believing Caroline was the best caretaker for Brent 
since this arrangement allowed her to coax as much money as possible out of the Springfords. In the fall of 2000, Caroline took Brent to see a doctor for his increasingly obvious mental instability. The psychiatrist diagnosed Brent with bipolar disorder, claiming he was the most depressed person he'd ever seen. The diagnosis, along with the fact that Caroline had been the one to get Brent to even see a psychiatrist, re-established the Springford's confidence in her that she was actually an appropriate and genuine caretaker for the son. Soon after, the Springfords purchased a half-million-dollar home in Greenlee, Colorado for their son, with the intention of Caroline and her children moving in as well. For the Springfords, it meant Brent was closer to professional medical care, and hopefully, it would also encourage him to return to Naropa University. But that would never happen. Brent Jr. stopped taking his medication and continued to deteriorate. It was also the time Caroline began treating Brent in increasingly degrading ways. I mean, everything to sort of make you feel small, to denigrate you. He moves to a home that his parents bought for them in Greeley, Colorado, half a million dollar house. But Brent didn't get to live inside the house. Caroline made him live in the garage. And he built like an enclosure, which was kind of like, a, he called it a monk cell. There was a single bed, a desk, a hot plate, and he was not allowed in the house his parents bought unless he called her first and was summoned or asked permission to come in. Um, he didn't eat with them. He ate like instant oatmeal, you know, and peanut butter while they were eating on basically his parents' money. This slide toward insanity accelerated. At night, he would dig what he called his worry hole. He'd have a, a helmet with a miner's light on it, and late, late into the night, he would dig this huge hole in the backyard for no purpose. Brent Jr.'s mind was getting worse and worse, and there's no doubt his decline was exacerbated, perhaps even deliberately by Caroline. It's inhumane, but at the same time, which is what makes this thing be drawn out, is that on a day-to-day -day basis, he was functional. So he wasn't like laying in bed all day, you know, immobile, the way it affects some people. If Caroline said, we're going to see the shrink, he would go to see the shrink. And on the dark side, if Caroline or one of the kids said, while they're shopping, I'd really like this, he would then go back and steal it for them. So he was functional, you know, and, and it was so terrible. I mean, her kids made fun of him because she denigrated him in their presence and, they, and then they tended to denigrate him, sometimes in his presence. It's horrible. By the time 2004 rolled around, Brent Jr.'s parents were beginning to lose hope he'd ever recover. They'd been trying unsuccessfully to convince Brent to enter a psychiatric residential facility for treatment, and since they couldn't have him involuntarily committed, they threatened to use the most powerful weapon in their arsenal, cutting him off financially. That fall, his sister Robin who'd rarely spoken to Brent over the years, invited him to attend her upcoming wedding. Fearing Brent's presence at the wedding would be an unwanted distraction, at best, and an utter disaster at worst, the Springfords asked Robin to rescind Brent's invitation to her wedding. It was also around that time, the Springfords began viewing giving money to Brent as enabling rather than supporting. After the wedding, 
they finally decided to tighten their purse strings and cancel Brent's credit card. She was afraid that if they really cut him loose financially, or cut him off financially, that he'd kill himself. And, and only at the very periphery of their consciousness was the notion that he might do them harm. When they had Robin disinvite him to the wedding, that clicked into like second gear. And then when they seemed like they were serious about cutting him off financially, and he went to, I think, a lumber yard and the credit card had been canceled, I think that clicked him up into third gear and made him vulnerable, it's only conjecture at this point, for uh, Caroline to plant in his mind the idea of killing his parents. On Monday, November 22nd, 2004, Caroline drove Brent Jr. to a bus station in Fort Collins, about 45 minutes from their home in Greenlee. On Tuesday morning, he purchased a ticket under a false name and began his journey to Montgomery for a surprise visit to his parents' home. I don't know that he, that he formed the intent of killing both his parents when he got on that bus. I think he knew he'd have to resolve the situation somehow and I don't think that excluded the possibility of killing him, but I don't think he got on that bus thinking he was going to beat his parents to death with an axe handle. I just don't. I don't think he was, I don't think he was clear-headed enough. After the 24-hour bus ride from Colorado to Montgomery, Brent arrived in his hometown on Wednesday the 24th at 5.15 p.m. At the exact same time Brent was sprinting from the bus station to his parents' home, Charlotte and Brent Sr. were leaving their house to spend the night with Charlotte's sister in Birmingham. As they left, they activated their home security system at 5.30 p.m. So when Brent arrived at his parents' home, no one was there. He'd missed them by mere minutes. He breaks in a window which he knows is not connected to the burglar alarm system from when he was a kid, and he waits. He doesn't, he doesn't know where his parents are. He just knows that they're not there. And then... Cops come because people said there's some movement and there's some lights on in the house. Cops come, go away. Neighbors are in the area, dogs are barking, they're looking around. As the commotion continued on outside, Brent made his way to his parents' pool house where he would stay the night. It's also where he would find the weapon he'd use later, a pickaxe handle. On Thanksgiving evening, Charlotte and Brent Jr. returned home as Brent waited inside for them. What exactly happened next isn't entirely known. Brent Jr. would later provide three separate accounts, which were all given either under the influence of heavy medications, sleep deprivation, or Brent's own possible psychosis. What the physical evidence makes clear is that the first attack of Brent Sr. took place on the second floor landing. So whether he engaged them or let them know he was there when they came into the kitchen door, as he says in one account, impossible to say. What we do know is that he attacked his father first, just at the top of the, of the back stairs on the landing, because that's where a huge amount of blood is. Uh, I think it was a kind of ferocious attack. Whether his father had any warning, impossible to say for me. We, we, don't, we don't know that. You know, he, he dragged his father's body into his sister's room in a closet. And somehow, either his, his mom had already gone up first if he let her pass, or she came up a different stairwell because she was in the master bedroom. And after he had bludgeoned his father, I don't know if she even heard the attack, but then he, he attacked her in the, in the master bedroom. Although Brent Sr. had military training and a black belt in karate, 
there were no defensive wounds evident on his body, which is one of the reasons why some investigators believed Brent's attack on his father was a surprise. From Charlotte's defensive wounds, we know she tried fighting back. She wasn't killed outright. She tried to get to the phone, and then he finished her off. You know, he gives a couple accounts of a dialogue and exchange between him and his father, him and his mother. We don't know. There's no way, you know, to know whether it was just a sudden, silent attack on his father without warning, or whether they had argued in the kitchen first, and he went upstairs, and then and Brent Sr. followed. We, we, we just don't know. We just don't know. After killing his parents, Brent Jr. stole his father's Jaguar and drove it to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he ditched it and hopped onto a Greyhound bus to Denver. The following day, Charlotte and Brent Sr.'s bodies were discovered. The Springford's troubles with their son were no secret, so it didn't take long for investigators to turn their eyes toward Colorado, and the first person they talked to was Caroline Scout. Initially, Caroline had alibis for Brent's entire week of Thanksgiving, but each time the detective spoke with Caroline, her story changed until she eventually claimed to have no specific knowledge of Brent's whereabouts during the entire week. Slowly and deliberately, Caroline was beginning to throw her husband under the bus. Then a few days later, Caroline called detectives to tell them Brent Jr. had told her he might have killed his parents. Caroline then claimed Brent drove himself to a mental hospital and checked himself in. When detectives heard the news, they drove straight to the hospital to speak with Brent, conducting what can only be described as a legally questionable interview. They picked him up at a mental facility. He was under the influence of psychotropic drugs and he was sleep deprived. He had no attorney. It was entirely irregular and they should have taken him to the Boulder County Jail. They didn't. They detoured to this empty police station. They taped him. They, he didn't have a lawyer. He didn't know what he wanted. That was one of the wild cards when, when, they, when the case came to trial. While speaking to detectives, Brent made a full confession to killing his parents. He also said at one point, I just feel like I'm drugged. But detectives were feeling the pressure. And I asked the cops, and I said, well, he said, we knew we were rolling the dice, but we were under a lot of pressure to deliver. And we figure, let's just do this, and maybe we can fill in behind it, or let the prosecutor worry about it. We're out of it. If they didn't have the confession, they had nothing. What they had was one of Brent's fingerprints in his parents' house, not in blood, on surveillance in bus stations back and forth. We've got all this circumstantial evidence, but we can't put him in the house. Both Brent and Caroline maintained that she knew nothing about Brent's trip to Montgomery. Nevertheless, every investigator close to the case believed she knew much more than she'd admitted. Many even suspected she'd been the mastermind behind the Springford murders. After Brent's drug-impaired confession, he was arrested for his parents' murders and booked into jail. As someone said, who I talked to, who knows this field, Caroline was stupid, but she was also cunning. And the stupidity came in where she thought that if, if he killed his parents, even if he was convicted and got the death penalty, that she would be the successor in interest to his half of his family's estate. Well, that's incredibly stupid because, I mean, in no state can you profit from a crime. It's against English common law, and some states have 
done, you know, son of son of Sam laws to, to lock it down that you you won't you can't you know you can't kill and have your have your kids inherit that doesn't work but she thought it did. Once Brent was behind bars, Caroline almost immediately ceased communication with him, only writing him seven postcards during his entire time in prison. Because Caroline was much more concerned whether she'd inherit Brent's half of the Springford's fortune or not. Where are we with the estate? Where are we with, with the will? Asking that over and over again. But despite Caroline's lack of communication with Brent, it was clear to everyone around him, his jailmates and his defense team, that he was completely under Caroline's spell. He refused outright to implicate Caroline with any involvement, and he'd become passionately angry if the subject ever came up. He even made a makeshift shrine for Caroline in his jail cell. Legal proceedings in capital cases are often slow, and Brent's case was no exception. Some of the holdup was due to mental evaluations, a mountain of legal motions filed by the defense, and a prosecution that knew its case rested on a legally shaky confession. Most of all, Brent's mental conditions continued to deteriorate, making it nearly impossible for Brent to help his lawyers prepare a defense. Four years later, both the prosecution and defense team were ready to make a deal. Behind the curtain, Brent was going crazier and crazier with them. I mean, they were having a harder and harder time with him, and there's no telling what, what, what he would have done or what, he, you know, he might have, you know, rejected any deal. They didn't know until the very end that this, that they could get him to accept the plea bargain. Regardless of whether or not Brent was found not guilty by reason of insanity or was found guilty, the most likely scenario in either case was that Brent would spend the rest of his life behind bars in a mental health facility. The prosecution knew it would be difficult to convince a jury to send a person with Brent's history of mental illness to death row. In November 2008, after four long years of legal maneuvering, Brent Springford Jr. pleaded guilty to the murder of his parents and received a sentence of life without parole. One of the members of Brent's defense team was a woman who specialized in death penalty mitigation work, Susan Wardell. Over the years while she worked with Brent Jr., attempting to keep him off death row, she became emotionally invested in the case. She became frustrated with, with Brent Jr. because she got this strong feeling, based on her research, that Caroline Scout was the intellectual author of this crime. But he resolutely opposed anything like that. He resisted anything that brought her into harm's way. He told her and the attorneys he didn't want her called as a witness. He didn't want to talk about her. And for a time, he didn't want them to go talk to her. And he was just so deeply under her sway that he couldn't contemplate rolling on her. And it's possible he might have gotten a better deal from the prosecutor if he'd been willing to roll on her, but he resolutely refused. It just so happened, Susan was also Mark's sister-in-law. Susan, my sister-in-law, became increasingly frustrated and angry. She felt that Caroline was really responsible for turning this basically vulnerable, decent kid down this horrible path that led to the threat of the death penalty and failing that, a life in prison. On October 1st, 2013, Mark Pinsky released his first true crime book, Met Her on the Mountain. Just days later, on October 5th, Brent committed suicide in prison 
by overdosing on Tylenol. In response to Brent's suicide and her continued frustrations of the case, Susan Wardell turned to her brother-in-law, Mark, for help. I read your book. I have a case that needs to be written about. It was a miscarriage of justice, and I want you to write a book about it. And I said, well, I'll think about it. And she sent me 15 file boxes worth of material that she had collected while working on the defense team for a young man who had brutally beaten and slashed to death his parents. And when I saw what she gave me, it was a cache, basically you know, a golden cache of letters, emails, personal journal entries from both the victims and the person who killed, psychiatric records, which in this country you can't get un under HIPAA. It's almost impossible to get psychiatric records, even if the person's dead. But when I stacked them up on the floor, the stack of psychiatric records for this young man was a foot and a half off the ground. And uh, I read the 15 boxes and said, okay, I'm in. And at that point, I began seriously researching this book. There was no way Mark could have known at the time, but he was about to get way more involved than he ever anticipated. I basically thought I was done. And I thought the story ended in Montgomery with Brent's suicide. That was, I thought, the end of the book. Just to tie off loose ends, Mark decided to make a trip to Colorado to finish up his research. A private investigator from uh, Denver, a man named Wayne Diffie, who had worked with my sister-in-law and the defense team earlier, graciously offered to help me out pro bono. And so he began poking around because at that, at that point, I didn't know where Caroline was at the time. He said, well, I'll look into, I'll see what I can do. And I went back, went back home to central Florida, my suburban home. He calls me or emails. He said, you know, the strangest thing happened. I said, I tracked her down to Wyoming and he just found another body on her property. I said, whoa, <laughs> whoa. After Mark called and told Deputy Sheriff Watsaba about the Springford murders, he was invited to become actively involved in the investigation. And the more they investigated, the more Sandy's suicide began looking like a homicide. Everything in the days and hours leading up to his death, no indication. I mean, he was looking forward, he was shopping, he was talking about medicine, he was laughing, he was talking to some people who were working on Caroline's house. Two young people were doing the siding, I think. And he was all sort of very upbeat. And then the, was the physical evidence, the position of the body, the position of the gun, where the blood spatter was on the floor. And then later, other stuff came up. He hated guns. It wasn't his gun. It was Caroline's gun. And he was very opposed to suicide. When Robin Williams killed himself, he was bereft how, how he could do something like that. And between the physical evidence inside his trailer, where he was, his body was found, and his demeanor in the days and weeks and hours before his death all suggested something else. Even more revealing than the gun was that not a single fingerprint of Sandy's could be found on it. Perhaps it goes without saying it's not exactly possible to wipe your fingerprints off a gun if you're already dead. Plus the fact that there was um, two insurance policies worth $125,000 and Caroline was a sole beneficiary, not his ex-wife, not his daughter. He, he was not sleeping with Caroline. He was not in a business relationship with Caroline. Normally, an insurance company won't write a policy on someone if you don't have a connection to them. And uh, the fact that she kept bugging them to sign the death certificate in a very mercenary sort of way. And then later we learned that she had probably scammed Campbell out of 
between two and three hundred thousand dollars from his own father's estate that he inherited and uh, had communicated with Campbell's siblings in a way that remarkably echoed the communication between Caroline and Brent Jr. and his parents. Really very hostile wording. And then detectives uncovered Sandy Campbell's personal journals. And the way he described how he was demeaned by Caroline were eerily reminiscent of what Brent wrote about himself. So there was what I would say a growing mountain of circumstantial evidence that he did not kill himself and that the only person who stood to benefit from his death, the only person, was, was Caroline. What Saba decided it was time to create a task force to investigate the suspicious death of Sandy Campbell. To Mark's surprise, he was invited to participate. This is also strange. It's almost surreal for a reporter to be involved except on TV or in the movies or in a mystery where in real life it doesn't happen that way. And so come Monday morning, I, I drive over to the, you know, the sheriff's office. We go into the squad room and he's there. The Weston County coroner is there. A coroner from two counties over, from Campbell County is over. And she brought her investigator who was an ex-cop. And so we're sitting in this room and Patrick convenes the meeting and he says, okay, Mark, you go first. <laughs> what? You know? And so I, I told everyone the story that I had told him about the Springfords and about all of that. And then after I spoke, each coroner had done her own research and they each came in with a stack of, of documents. So then we, we went around and, um, and then, you know, after that, we were sort of off, off to the races pretty much. Strangely absent from the task force meeting regarding Sandy's death was the Weston County attorney the man who'd be responsible for pursuing criminal prosecution if Sandy's death was declared a homicide. To Mark and the others, something seemed fishy. Many of the people in Newcastle believed the prosecutor's unwillingness to pursue Caroline was because his wife had a close relationship with her. It was even speculated she might even be one of Caroline's spiritual followers, but the claims were never fully investigated. I could never tell as time went on and unfolded, whether he was just lazy or whether he was in some way corrupt. And I could never, I could never decide that. I mean, he dragged his feet at that first task force meeting. He should have been there. I mean, this is his job, but he wasn't. And every time the coroners or, the, or Patrick would turn up more evidence and information and share it with him, he would say, okay, thank you very much. And then nothing would happen. And it was increasingly that way. And then finally, the, the two coroners were so frustrated by his inaction that they said, screw him. We're going to have a coroner's inquest, which by law we can do. It's an investigative proceeding. We're an authority. And we'll use that to put Caroline on trial with all the information that we've, that we've gotten. And Caroline didn't want to testify. Her lawyer didn't want her to testify. And again, the prosecutor would not get off his butt and compel her to testify. Following the coroner's inquest were three days of testimony when it was finally determined that Sandy Campbell's death was officially a homicide, but the case was never prosecuted. We'll never know exactly what happened to Sandy Campbell that day or who pulled the trigger, whether it was Caroline or someone else she convinced to do the deed. One thing that is for certain is that Sandy Campbell didn't die at his own hands that day. 
state law enforcement agencies began investigating Caroline's shady financial dealings, ultimately charging her with a felony for defrauding another Colorado woman out of $500,000. Although she was arrested and held in jail, the charges were quietly dropped against her by the same prosecutor. And then, just like that, Caroline seemed to have dropped off the grid. That is until February 2019, when she passed away from natural causes. Both the coroners didn't believe she was really dead, you know. And, and, and Cynthia Crabtree, who's the coroner, still coroner of uh, Weston County, she called the, the county medical examiner out there because she wanted to see the death certificate. You know, this woman was such a con woman that even in death, there was doubt. With Caroline's death, any hope she'd come to justice for her role in the Springford murders, Sandy Campbell's murder, not to mention the numerous people she'd defrauded over the years, died with her. I couldn't guarantee we would bring her to justice, but if we didn't, that this book would be the trial she never had. Everyone in this case was searching for something. Brent for enlightenment, Caroline for her prey, and for Charlotte and Brent Sr., it was answers. Answers to questions everyone who hears this story must ultimately ask. Questions Mark Pinsky has grappled with as well. I, I'll, I'll go off script for a second, but this was, this was a traumatic book to write. I mean, I have two kids, 31 and 34, and um, I kept putting myself in Charlotte's place. I mean, I kept saying all the way along, what would I have done? What could she have done differently? And you, you read this in her letters and in her, you know, mostly in her letters, but in her journal as well, that she was always second guessing herself and always, she never quit on that boy. She never quit, regardless of how hostile he became, how angry he became, how much money he squeezed out of both of them. She never, ever gave up on him you know, until the very end. And I just, you know, my heart was breaking while I was writing this book. And this is a very sad story. I mean, there's no way um, around that. And I can't even say it's a, it's an educational, teachable thing, because I don't know what clear lessons we can take from this. It was just the worst possible outcome involving very good people. Perhaps if there's to be one takeaway from the Springfords case, it's in Mark's reflection. A question we should all ask ourselves as we peer behind the curtain of people's lives. What would you do? We want to offer our sincere gratitude to author Mark Pinsky for taking the time to discuss a case he's dedicated years of his life to uncovering. If you'd like to find out more about this case, we highly recommend you check out Mark's book, Drifting Into Darkness, set to release on April 5th. You can pre-order your copy now on either Amazon or markpinsky.com. Normally in this part of the show, I like to introduce you to a podcast, but this time we've got something a little bit different. It's an audiobook, and it's narrated by our friend Tony Plattis, the host of the podcast Death is Hilarious, and the book is called Lies in Bone. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Lane DeGregory calls Natalie Simon's debut novel Lies in Bone a gripping tale of outcasts that keeps you guessing. 
winner of the Best Book Award and the Royal Dragonfly Literary Award, Lies and Bone is fueled by family secrets involving love, murder, and the truths worth lying for. Voice actor Tawny Plattis narrates the newly released audiobook of this heart-stopping work of suspense as a tough-minded young woman named Frank, determined to solve a small town's mystery, both tragic and chilling in its detail. Relying on her wits and fortitude to unravel a decades-old unsolved crime, she is led to discover the unimaginable. Lies and Bone is now available on audible.com. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at MadnessPod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness.